and gentlemen, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. And hello everyone and welcome to another episode here of Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. I am the big dog, Alan McLucas, and tonight we are discussing the Samoan submission machine that is Samoa Joe. Yes, now before we get into all the fun stuff, we'll do a wee bit of housekeeping here. Remember, you can follow us on the socials and Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Suplex Retweet. You can follow us on YouTube as well, Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet, as well as the website, Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet.com. And also, we're on all good podcasting sites such as iTunes, Spotify, and Podbean. Now, on to the good stuff. Now, we're big fans here at Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet of some more Joe. But the two biggest fans are probably here right now. It's myself and as uh, the boss man, Stephen Wilson. Stephen, how you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm good, man. How are you? Hi, I'm good to see you. So, uh, so it's well known we all love some more Joe within the podcast, but we've never really had the opportunity to look into his past. So, we're we're finally getting that opportunity. And um, just before we go into it, some more Joe, just a generalisation, possibly one of the most underrated. Yeah, best wrestlers of all time. Oh god, he's an absolute bulldozer. He was. I was first introduced to Joe when I discovered that there was another wrestling promotion in the in, <laughs> other than WWE. I mean, because I kind of you were probably similar on the way I kind of grew up. It's like WWE, WCW were on the telly, and you only ever thought that these were the these were the two things. ECW were kind of crept in. And then after this WCW went bust, you were like, right, it's just WWE or nothing. And then TNA started appearing, I think it was on Bravo over here, I can't remember what it was, it started on Bravo or Challenge, I can't remember what one of the two. But I kind of started jumping in and out of that, and then I seen this big, badass dude just beating everybody to a pulp, and I was like, who the hell is this? And it is Samoa Joe, and from then on I followed his career quite closely. Through TNA, I've watched some of his stuff before. TNA and obviously he's running the last six, seven years as part of the WWE NXT uh, brands. So, yeah, but I've always thought that he could have done so much more, but obviously we'll discuss that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, just that's something I love that was similar, Joe. Being a big guy that I am, seeing a guy of his size and stature move around like a cat and he can keep up with these high flyers for pace. It's the whole package is absolutely everything, and he's just monumentally superb. I mean, uh, when we do eventually get into doing a Mount Rushmore TNA, he will, I think, definitely be on it. I think no, if somebody doesn't put him on it, then they're getting shot from the show because there's no chance that man can't be on it. I mean, he's absolutely incredible. And you say he's had such a stellar career. Um, so let's go into look at that. I mean. The thing is as well, I thought Samoa Joe was actually a lot older than he actually is. He's only, he's just turned, uh, sorry, as of recording, he's just off a week short of his 43rd birthday. And he's been round the block for about 20 years. It just shows how good a talent he was that he broke in to mainstream wrestling at such a young age. Contrary to some beliefs as well, he's not actually Samoan. He's from George County, California. (laughs) So it's not... It's not like the old joke going, uh, there's two Samoans called Joe. It's like, no, really, Roman Reigns is the only actual Samoan Joe. He's he's just an imposter. But yeah, 
it was kind of you kind of think see because he's been around so long you kind of think yeah he's been in the when he broke in maybe 40s maybe in his late 40s but yeah no he's only his early 40s so it kind of shows because when he broke into kind of ring of honor i mean 20 years ago kind of he brought into ring of honor so he would have been 23 22 he was champion at the age of 24 25 you know he broke in tna uh, roughly when he was about 26 27 so to be that good at that age i mean there's not many that can do it and he did it very very well Absolutely. I mean, people talk about just now, like uh, MJF and AEW being like 20, 21 when he signs for the company, you know, and obviously now arguably it's a bit easier because there are a lot more companies. But as you said at the start of this thing, after ECW and WCW went, as far as we knew over here in the UK, it was just literally WWE. And then to find out, you know, there's these other companies and they're producing all these incredible stars, like Samoa Joe. Um, you know, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. And then. Um, you know he actually had a match on WWE, actually Samoa Joe very early on in his career. Did he? Yeah. In February 2001, he was on the 80th episode of WWF Jacked. Don't know how much you remember of that show, Alan. Not many people do remember much. I don't even know if it's on the network, Jacked. But he lost to one S.A. Rios on that show. Yeah, that was... uh, S.A. Rios had been running solo, I think, at that point for a couple of months because uh, Lita had broke off. She was with the Hardy Boys. He was just kind of... I think S.A. Rios was just pretty much on his way out. I don't think he was going to be there for much too longer, but... Jumping yeah, it's one of the examples because there's ones like... Uh, AJ Styles fought in Velocity, so did the... There's a match that Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson, he took on John Cena in Velocity one time. That video where John Cena's wearing the pure yellow you know, jean pants, things, it looks absolutely stupid. Yeah, I mean, you think of some of the other wrestlers, like you think of talking about Christopher Daniels as well. He was on one of the shows, you know, it's, it's, it's mental. And I mean, it's great that TNA gave a lot of these guys their start to becoming mainstream stars, but we'll go into TNA shortly. But as we all know, Joe's had a huge impact, no pun intended, within the NBC circuit in the United States and also over in Europe. But really, when he made his name firstly, Ring of Honor, um, as well as that, I mean, he is an original Ring of Honor. Um, there's no many still active that I can actually say that. But, you know, he signed and he made his debut at Glory of Honor against one Christopher Daniels. Uh, as he, sorry, he was Christopher Daniels, a hired assassin. Apologies. Um, so, yeah, and. He does look like a hitman, so you put him in a suit, especially if you think about like main event mafia further on in TNA. He's quite incredible figure in a suit, he does look like a mob hitman, doesn't he? Yeah, I could kind of see that, I could kind of see that, I mean... Yeah, Daniels, I mean, he's a guy... You could do a, you could probably do a show on Christopher Daniels, there's that much information on him. So, great stuff going on about that, but yeah. Joe was kind of... I mean, I think, you think of uh, Ring of Honor Originals, yeah, actually, you, you mentioned, Alan, that you, you, there are not a lot of them very much active, but the big ones are still in there. You've got the likes of Daniels is still active in some way. He's kind of doing the New Japan Strong stuff. Uh, Brian Danielson, uh, he was synonymous with that company for so long. Uh, a guy who, you know, in the last few months has resurrected himself uh, in CM Punk. He was a big part of the early Ring of Honor, and another guy you would think of as, as Joe, because... 
Ring of Honor kind of just gave him the chance because as we mentioned earlier on, he's not your typical big man. At that particular time, we were used to seeing likes of uh, guys at that time, like Mark Henry at that particular point in time. You know, there was guys like um, Big Show type of thing. They were the ones you kind of focused on, Undertaker Kane. Uh, but Joe had something that they didn't have and it was the fact of he, he could slap you and it would hurt like thick. Uh, he would then choke you out. Uh, you think, oh, I'm going to go to the top rope to try and beat you. No, no, quick kick. It's just like, he had, he's got, especially, he still does today, but especially in his early career, he had every box ticked for what an all-rounder wrestler should have. And I think that's what made him such a enticing prospect, especially for the company at that time like Ring of Honor. They were starting up, they wanted to be the alternative because there wasn't many. I mean, Ring of Honor started before TNA was a thing. So, maybe around about the same time kind of thing. So, they wanted to kind of be that kind of grungy type of pure style wrestling. And to bring in a guy like Joe, he would, he's that type of attraction. Combined with the likes of, you know, you got Brian Danielson, you know, uh, at that time, Nigel McGuinness as well. You know, there were so many different aspects of it that created such a good roster. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, I've, I've taken a wee note from these, uh, his highlight from uh, Ring of Honor now, no doubt there'll be lots of missed, right? But just in a, a quick synopsis, so he was the longest reigning world champion. He won, he won it in March 2003, held it till December 26, 2004, but he actually dropped it to one Austin Aries, which in is, is kind of poor taste uh, considering his character, but considering you can't deny he is a phenomenal wrestler. Um, He's had an incredible rival with CM Punk, and his second match with CM Punk was the first match in the United States to ever get a five-star rating from Uncle Dave. Yeah, that is... 28... No, no, sorry, 2004 is... I mean, everybody talks about big things in Ring of Honor. They've mentioned the Summer of Punk, for example, is something... Uh, I can't mind if it was the year after this one. I can't exactly remember off the top of my head what the year of Punk was. But 2004 was the year of Joe in this company. I mean, the things that he, the matches he was having, he was putting on classic after classic, you know, anytime he's sitting in the show. And the Punk stuff is great because anybody who loves good quality wrestling needs to try and go out and find. Uh, I, I can't. I mean, obviously, I don't know what the situation is going to be with Ring of Honor streaming. I've never used it, so I don't know what the catalogue is on that one. But the three matches the two of them have in that year 2004, two of them go to 60-minute draws. Now, up until, you know, in the last, like, six months or something, where AEW's done a couple of them with Danielson against um, Page and Omega, you don't get so that many time limit draws in the one period of time and especially some of the time it's 30 minute ones these guys went for 60 minutes twice in a year and it's just like it's it's amazing the fact that they then go on to have the third match which goes only 31 minutes and it's still a classic you know it's just the amount of stuff they were putting on was unbelievable and even that's the one in that year that kind of stands out to so many people but he had he had so many other stuff in there as well he's got a good match that year as well with Homicides 
at uh, Generation Next. Uh, Alan, and obviously you've, you're familiar with TNA, but a lot of the guys who see Homicide when he was in TNA, when he was with uh, Hernandez, don't kind of appreciate the full aspect of what that guy could do. I mean, TNA was only a, a fraction of what he was capable of when he was in Ring of Honor. They gave him a bit more free reign to kind of go with it. And you know, they had two matches actually that year as well. And I actually remember one in July as well. So some good stuff in there. Uh, I mean, the Danielson as well. He, they, they had an absolute classic as well. Uh, Glory by Honor 3 with uh, uh, UK's Doug Williams. There's just such a catalogue of stuff in there. And it's, it's testament, kind of, uh, when you think about it, man, that the work he does in this, this year, that in 2005, you know, Ring of Honor get a deal where they, they get Kenta Kabashi, who is one of the greatest Japanese or the greatest wrestlers of all time, one of the most famous names to come out of Japan, comes on a trip to the US that year and Ring of Honor again for two shows. And the guy that they decide to put him in with both times in different aspects is Samojo. So the fact he was it just showed that how much he'd built a body of work. I mean, obviously there was guys as well, and I mentioned Danielson. Guinness they could have done with, but Joe was the trusted guy, and I think it was just because of the kind of Japanese style, the hard striking, that he was the perfect fit for it. And the Kenta Kabashi stuff, that's another one. That was um, uh, Dave Meltzer gave it his match of the year for 2005. And also five stuff as well, which was his second one. And do you know what I think is the most frightening aspect of this? So at this point, he's what, 23, 22, 23. And there, a lot of people swear by me else on these raids. I'm particularly not. I don't that personally agree yeah, with them. I know you. But for a guy me who I suspected in the industry, especially at that time, maybe not as much now, but at that time, to have two five star matches uh, and you're not even in your prime, it's unbelievable. It's literally, Mate. it's literally like kind of, we could do a, another example is especially based on what's happened in the last couple of weeks, you could easily do a show on the history of Ring of Honor. And you get this kind of 2002 to 2009, 10 period, where some of the guys that were coming out of there, very household names now, some of the matches they were putting on. And it is fitting that, uh, you know, Joe's getting put in the Hall of Fame for Ring of Honor this year. You know, it's, it's, a, it's absolute deserved, especially kind of, his kind of full-time run there was kind of like maybe like three, four years, you know. So as it, it just shows how much he kind of did on that one, and it's, it's that that is really kind of owned his owned his craft. He kind of he had spells and some other indie promotions over that particular point, but that was where he was the mainstay. And you know, TNA and Ring of Honor had quite a, a close relationship at that particular point in time. There was. I think there was a there was a point they would share the talent so you know, I can't remember what side the things kind of said no we don't want that anymore so that's kind of I think it was kind of I think it was TNA actually said to yeah, a I think lot of them guys the big TV deals and they needed yeah, them more yeah because I think that's why um, I think that's why Punk left TNA actually now I think about it because they kind of said that you need to either work, we can't have you working with or TNA and he said I'm going to go to Ring of Honor. And that's why he just kind of left TNA. But they did have a decent relationship. And then that's obviously how he got on the radar for uh, TNA. Yeah, absolutely. 
just some more of his highlights in his time there. So, from 7th of May 2005, he beats Jay Lethal to become the fifth pure champion. He doesn't do it very long. He does drop it uh, three months later, the night of McGuinness. As you mentioned, he got his match with Kenta Kobayashi, five-star match of the year. Um, and he officially left on the 4th of March 2007, where he finally defeated Homicide. But he did come back for one night only to defeat one other than Tyler Black on the 22nd of November 2008. And that was a cracking match as well. Ah, uh, yeah. Big Sexy Seth. As he's kind of known these days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Just they, they, they've, they've had some good the, matches. The 90s spot's unbelievable. That's thing I've learned. I've not got to TNA or WWE yet. The ninjas already faced. It's just unbelievable talent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it it, 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 it tended like there was a couple of spells where uh, I mentioned the Kobe at the Kenta Kabashi stuff, and um, there was a few times they had stuff going on with Pro Wrestling Noah, which was uh, Kenta Kabashi's uh, company. And any time some guy from that company showed up, it was Joe came and squared to him because. I think it was kind of like a back. They must have had like a backstage thing. They were kind of like, right, who wants to get absolutely slapped across the chops? Don't any problem. It's just a big slugfest. You can imagine him just having like, you can imagine like going for a pint with him and then somebody trying to annoy you and then just him walking in. You're like, yeah, I'm okay. Here's a big, here's a big one. Yeah, he is the bodyguard. I don't need left my hand on you, listen. See what you have. See what happens there. Enjoy the hospital food. Aye, uh, pretty much. Alright, so um, yeah, so Joe Ring of Honor, he was there for in total around four years. Um, he discovered the black match was the one and only, and what a four years it was. But he did do work the indie scenes again for a while. Um, and then in 2005, it's actually the 14th of June, he officially signed with TNA five days before Slammiversary, and then beat Sonjay Dutt in his debut, and therefore. As I mentioned, it's that he's known as the Samoan Submission Machine. That was coined by Mike Tenet during that match. I mean, that's a phenomenal wrestling name. It really is. Oh, it's, a, it's so clever. I, I didn't actually realise until I was doing the research before the show that that was kind of where he got that nickname. I've always thought that was something he kind of brought in. But this was this was around about the time I started watching TNA. And it just kind of... The top of the TNA roster at that particular point in time, where they had the X Division, I mean, that's he would be a big part of the X Division, as we mentioned on X Division show we did a few years ago. And there was so many guys that kind of stood out from that that they had on that card, you get the likes of Alex Shelley, Amazing Red, uh, and that type of stuff. But Joe kind of, he, his debut match was kind of in the middle of the cards, uh, and it kind of, just kind of had to set up and take notice. You were like, well, this guy means business. And I think the kind of 18 to, month, 18 to 24 month period that he had following that is arguably one of the, some of the most dominant wrestling times in wrestling. Like one of the most dominant performers. The way they booked him, they booked him better in his first 18 to 24 months than they booked him he's like his next seven years, which showed just how well he, was, he did. Yeah, I mean, top people thought were Brock Lesnar, Goldberg and Adams, but I mean, he was the sort of the second coming of, if you think about Goldberg in his prime. I mean, Lesnar never really, well, he had his moments, but 
you think Alexa Speed's never had that long term dominance where like obviously Goldberg and uh, you know uh, some more Joe has but I mean when you look at some of the matches he has especially in his early run you know so I'm just looking here he won the Super X Cup beating Sonji Duck Alex Kelly and he beat Aiden Styles in the final um, and then possibly one of the greatest wrestling matches in absolute history Unbreakable the X Division Triple Threat against Styles and Daniels I mean we can do a whole show just on that match it's just absolute perfection I think we've mentioned it in a good few shows on this one it's just it's one of those matches that I think I've talked about I've been on most of these shows where they talked about this, this match and I think I've talked about it that many times I've lost count it's just the whole kind of rivalry that the three guys have, the chemistry, the way they interact in the ring, you know, they're completely different styles of wrestling, you know. But it's just like, you could put, like, you could put Styles with Daniels, it works. You could put Styles with Joe, it works. You could put Joe with Daniels, it works. Put the three of them together, you know, that's just, that's, just a, that's a fucking cocktail and a half. And it, 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 it I, I, we mentioned, I mentioned Dale as well, I kind of rounded this point, Alan, and the, the faith Ring of Honor had them to put on with, you know, Kenta, uh, Kenta Kibashi. The TNA did similar for that year's uh, Bounty for Glory, they put a magician from the Liger, and mm-hmm. they had to get, they opened the cart on, in the kind of early, uh, T- this was like the, one of the pay-per-views that stood out for me, in, uh, for TNA in our early days, because... You had the you had that was the pay-per-view as well that you had uh styles and daniels going the iron man match you had rhino won three times in one night he won the monsters ball match he won the he, the gauntlet match to challenge jeff jarrett in the main event which he won you know, that's not a classic match enough but i always remember that i always remember rhino going that hall as well and the fact that samoa joe has such a good match in the opener it's often forgotten about because that kind of closing segment, that pay-per-view that I just mentioned, is so memorable and iconic for TNA's early history. That, I mean, it goes seven minutes with Liger. I mean, it beats like This is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, one of the absolute legends, and he bars them in eight minutes. That's a, yeah. that's a, that's a statement. As, I mean, it, it obviously it shows what the company's thinking of, but also shows that Liger's agreed to take a squash the guy that you obviously this is your future this is who you put your your money behind him you back him to the hill so it's it's a great confidence boost and the, the, the it shows i mean as we mentioned here briefly you know the styles daniels the joe match actually starts five star match for Meltzer and bear in mind he's 24 still known his prime he's a three that's insane angle's not at one <laughs> he's a three <laughs> Yeah, it's mental to think that. Um, you know, and then he gets his first world title shot on, I'm telling you, Hazel's birthday, on her 18th birthday, on the, second, the 16th of July, when he fights Stein for the NW. He's in the Fatal Four Way with Christian Cage, Stein, and Stein, and Scott Steiner for the NWA title, but he doesn't win. Uh, Stein pins Steiner, so he's undefeated. Streak is still intact. Yeah, they were really clever ways in the way they did that. That's the, I think that was the point as well with the freeway match at Unbreakable because Daniels at that point was 
had this big massive streak going on. He was, I can't remember exactly how long he held the title for, but he didn't hold the title for a long time. So they wanted to flip it to Styles and kind of eventually. And I think they eventually did want to flip it to Joe. So kind of that was the way they went with it. Uh, but yeah, they, 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 I remember briefly that match you talked about the NWA one. I mean, one of the things we kind of missed upon, which I thought is a very emphatic point of his time, was the match at Genesis, the kind of eight-man tag. It seems like an absolute throwaway, but after the match, I've never seen a man take a beating like Christopher Daniels takes after Samoa Joe. Christopher Daniels, I mean, everybody will say that Styles is the guy who kind of helped put Joe over. Christopher Daniels is the man that did the sudden off of me. He bled and bled and bled after that match for Joe. I mean, that's how you make a guy a heel, you know, it's like... And they, are, they did well with that as well, because they kind of utilised the kind of Ring of Honor stuff, because they tried to kind of use the kind of Ring of Honor, Code of Honor stuff, and they kind of like, I'm going to do Nads, Barrier thing. That was quite clever. Uh, but they... The way they kept them, it's it's a hard, it's hard to keep a wrestler so strong for so long, either without kind of diluting them and kind of make think, oh well, you know, I'm getting a bit bored of them and they just kind of lose, or they kind of put themselves into a corner. And a great example of that was Ryback in WWE. They completely booked out, booked that into a corner. They they had something that was getting over, and they thought right, we'll put it in for the title. And they think, no, we shouldn't put him near the title. One, because he was still green as grass. And the other one was because uh, Punk was still running a, a great unbeaten run. But I don't think they ever saturated it with Joe, which I think was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, Joe, as a genesis, he actually loses undefeated sheep, but he loses it to Angle. And he, we can sit here and debate all his rivalries, but I mean, Pat Angle is possibly his greatest rival. I mean, oh, there's something else. There is the segment between the two of them. I think it's quite early on when they come in. I think it's actually when Angle first came in. It's, I can't remember the... I'm trying, I think you know the segment I'm talking about. It's a very, very famous segment between the two of them when they kind of stick heads into each other. I'm a bit annoyed that I, can't, I didn't actually look that segment up until I'm on the show. But it's literally... I think it was it's it was it was what it was the best food of the time. Uh, I mean, granted, it probably wasn't hard to be the best food at that time because WWE's storytelling at that point was quite bad. I mean, people would say it's bad now, but it was quite it was a bit dull then too. But I mean, Angle would he was fresh he was he was anywhere a fresh impetus, you know. Cut Angle walks into TNA, he could have he could have asked for anybody. You know, he could have he could have walked in going, give me Jarrett. They have a feud and it's a bit shit. But he could have went, give me Jarrett, give me Styles, give me Sting. But he goes, uh, but he, he, they give him Joe. And he can't let get eliminated. It's just, yes, yeah, as we cut, as cut Angle's debut segment, that is actually that one, yeah. That's the one I'm trying to find off of it. The two of them just getting a brawl over the kind of belt. Uh, but Jeff Jet's belt. It's look up on YouTube. It's it brings out so much heat, you know, without actually having them touch each other or to kind of get in the actual ring. Mm-hmm. It's just it's because Angle Angle's Angle was doing the main event. I think he was the main event enforcer for that pay per view. And Joe was in a Joe was in the Monsters Ball, so they were in completely different. It was completely separate. And the minute they do this, nobody wants to see Sting Jeff Jarrett 
what's going on with that one. They want to see Joe and Kurt Angle. Mm-hmm. They want to just get a taste for it. And, you know, what can we say? I mean, they have so many good ones. They have the, I mean, they have the 30-minute Iron Man match at, Rev- at Final Re- Resolution the, mm-hmm. the year after. Uh, they, they interact so many other times over the course of their times in TNA. Uh, yeah, it's a match made in heaven. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as well, I always felt like this time Angle was in his prime. He looked in the best shape of his entire career. And um, when he had that rugged look, he looked more dangerous as well. And I just think, looking back at Angle's career, Angle works with better, with bigger, bigger guys. It's just because his, his rivalry with Lesnar and WWE was superb for me. But that, and that's why I think he bounced off Joe so well because. Well, I say Joe and Lesnar are the same guy, but they've got a lot of similarities. They're big, they're strong, they're fast, they're really unorthodox, and the fact that they kind of can do everything. And Angle just bounces off that, and the chemistry, again, it's a chemistry Joe has with these people. It's just, it just, it just gets right into your skin, and you it's so gross battle. It's just utterly fascinating and brilliant. And you know, I think Angle is possibly the right person. To end Joe's streak. Um, so right. I feel going any longer, it would have probably turned into a, oh, did you still want it? And the fans may have turned against it. I think I they think did it. The, I think at the time, because uh, it, it, it was such a massive get for TNA to bring him in. I mean, no disrespect to Christian Cage. No, hey, Christian Cage is amazing. But Christian was never a world champ when he was in WWE. At, at that particular point, he was not a world champion in WWE. He was a great mid-card wrestler. He did the stuff, you know, the Asian Christian stuff was great. Did the IC title stuff, did the stuff with Jericho. Lots of great stuff. But when he came into TNA, TNA kind of took him to that next level. He didn't come in at that level. Kurt Angle came in. Kurt Angle had, was, had been WWE champion at the start of that, that year's WrestleMania. He walked into that year's WrestleMania as the, the World Heavyweight Champion, sorry, not WWE Champion. So um, he was still absolutely massive. There's, a, there's still a lot of people still kind of question the way TNA brought him in because he left WWE because he had so many issues outside the ring. So they thought TNA maybe bringing him into bad move, but it proved he, he did his best work in TNA, and it started from here because the Joe feud was what kind of got him. You know, what's the kind of say so you have to get your hands dirty a wee bit when you come in. You can't just walk in and expect to be given stuff. You know, so. That got him accustomed to the style again. I mean, obviously TNA is a different style to WWE. He got him accustomed to it, and then um, Angle from then on in became, you know, top three of the company all the time. And that's just what, that's how Joe did. I mean, one of the things that Joe, he's such an unselfish wrestler, such an unselfish professional. Because if you look at his uh, track record, he's only, he only won the TNA title once. Or play once. He only won the Ring of Honor World title once. Never won any of the big titles in WWE, other than the NXT title. You know, he never won any, never won the WWE or the Universal World Heavyweight, whatever it was when he came in. Because he does, he does a great job of helping others develop in that type of sense. Especially in his later time in TNA, he did that absolutely perfectly. And even it's mental that you're saying that a guy in Kurt Angle who'd won an Olympic gold medal had won multiple world titles, but Joe helped him. Yeah. To, to, helped him. That's, that's mental to think that Joe, a guy who'd been wrestling 
five, six years or something like that. Help the guy as it, in his words, won an Olympic gold medal with a broken freaking neck. Well, the thing about it, it was Joe's house. So, you know, if you're going to go over, you may as well, you may as well need the big, the, the top dog to help you. And you know, Joe did it fantastically. You know, Joe obviously sacrifices undefeated seat, and then they also. Joe, obviously, you know, later on in the year with Victory Road, he beat his brother, uh, brother Devon to win the X Division, uh, sorry, to win the tag titles, he's already the X Division champion, so he becomes the first person to hold multiple titles in TNA, and then from there, puts it all on the line against like, Angle at Hard Justice to win the TNA title, to win the lot, and makes a thing go... The grand, essentially the Grand Slam champion at the time. I mean, it, it shows what you're, you're talking about. It's really unselfish. He's there to help build the promotion because he probably knew at that point he wasn't as marked as Kurt Angle. So, if we're going to have the company grow, put everything in him and let him go and I'll be there to support him. And you're right, he's, he's exceptionally unselfish. He's absolutely incredible talent. I mean, and that's just a start. He's, he's, he's had some incredible other feuds and other matches. You know, Grand Slam champion as well, and you know the last is just keep on and on. But he's also been like one of the things I loved about Joe was he was in the main event mafia. I love that faction. Uh, I, I mean, I love it. The thing that was crap at this, I'm gonna be real. I'm gonna. I get. I like the main event mafia. I thought the main event mafia was a great was a great use of these kind of guys. I think it was what. WCW would have loved to have done with the U Blood Millionaires Club thing. They would have loved to have had something that worked like that. But you know, they went bust a year late, uh, less than a year later. Uh, but I, I thought Joe, I thought Joe getting into the mafia was a bit, a bit iffy because he kind of they they well, they literally took him out. You know, they took him out, and he comes back and he's sporting this mad, stupid kind of tribal face paint. It's like, ah, I'm, I'm gonna beat up everybody. I'm gonna get such revenge on all the guys who took me out. Or so you think. It's, <laughs> and this was the kind of. This was also one of the first times he starts changing his hairdo. When he's in WWE, I think he changes his hairdo every six every six months. Because he, he buzzes it and then he get that stupid I mean, ponytail thing, you know, and then he cuts it again, you know, that's just going off that tangent. But, yeah, he kind of had a bit of a different streak to him at this point in time. They gave him Taz as he's, I remember giving Taz, there was this whole big thing about who's, uh, who was going to come out and help him. And then Taz was quite cool because there is such similarities between him and Taz. Because Taz was this kind of, I mean, obviously, size difference but Taz had all the different could choke you out from anywhere could chuck you about you know granted Taz didn't have the athleticism and the speed across the ring at times that Joe kind of had but he was still a great hand so I thought that was a good match to kind of have but initially I didn't I didn't get him being in the Mafia I didn't really think I thought they could have kept him out of that I, I didn't think that was the best move in the world I think they could have worked I thought they could have still had him with Taz without him being in the Mafia. Because at the point I think he was coming in that the Mafia was kind of starting to fall apart because this was a sting and angle of fighting over who was going to be the leader. They started bringing in all these people like that, you know, that person from the reality TV show, that Jenna Maris, Mariska, whatever her name was. I can't remember who. She was Kevin Nash's Valley. 
know you're talking about. I remember her name, I. Yeah, she, she just didn't. She should not have been there. I mean, also, I'm sure the main event mafia is the reason why we got Jackson Riker as a wrestler. Because <laughs> I'm sure he was Angle's bodyguard at that point. Oh, my fingers are there. I'm sure he was Angle's bodyguard, Jackson Riker. That's how he initially came in. So at that particular point, it's like, maybe we could have done with that. But yeah, the Mafia was great. The Comeback Mafia, I thought, could have been absolutely amazing. Because mm-hmm. they had... I watched a video of it, actually. It came up on my Facebook timeline yesterday. And you had Sting, Angle, Samoa Joe, Nick Aldis, Magnus. That was, that was brilliant potential in that one. And because you had to be a world champion, he hadn't been world champion yet, but that was them um, solidifying. He's the guy now. This is the guy he's going to hold. And that was really also his career. Uh huh. Had uh, actually no sorry. Uh, Jackson Riker was associated with a mortal. He wasn't associated with the main event mafia. I'll correct myself now. Uh, yeah, and I think the biggest they, they tried to bring in Rampage Jackson. That's fine for you. I, was I don't know if you remember the segment for the Mafia when um, uh, they're fighting the Aces and Eights and uh, Tito Ortiz comes out because they're teasing this kind of because Tito Ortiz and Rampage Jackson are going to fight on Bellator I think at some point around about that time and they tease him coming out and all you see is this, this is iconic part of all the Mafia and the Aces and Eights Joe included they're all just like trying to pretend they're shocked and the crowd just do not give a fuck there's a great one <laughs> I mean, Sting's kind of like this. And Ken Anderson's got his hands on his head. Like, he's trying to pretend he's shocked, but he's, his face just says, I don't know who the fuck this guy is. It looks it's like, like, literally... It's not even a shocked face he makes. He just genuinely looks like he does not want to be there. It's just like... I think his mic today was actually screaming down the mic. God, that's you know, and to try and create something and you're right I mean, that, that was that storyline was. I know we're going off on a bit of a tangent but that storyline had been buzzed for so many weeks there was this big anticipation that it's just all these letters you know just done in the brown it's just like all the guys you could have brought I can't remember if this was before or after obviously you were on the AJ store show you may have a better idea you know a bit more about AJ I can't remember if this was before or after AJ came back and kind of helped the Mafia I think it's before because at this point they couldn't get the title off of really. So Styles came back and took the title off him. I think yeah. I need to double check. I mean, that sounds right in my head. I need to double check it. But I, I mean, I, I thought, you know, Joe, this is where I seen Joe taking a mentor role slightly, also taking Nick Aldis under his wing. And you've seen that again in like WWE and NXT. You know, and it was really, and it was quite good to see for me a different side of Joe and actually see, you talk about this unselfishness, you're actually seeing it in front of the camera this time instead of it's a being behind the screen and then you find out later on years past. So I really enjoyed that aspect of seeing a different side to some more Joe. Well, I think that's kind of how, I think you could have logic. I can't remember exactly how it went down, but they could have logically had him as the reason that Magnus was brought in, all this was brought in because... It was when Magnus Aldis started interacting with Joe in the kind of not long before this that we got that him getting that push because for so long he was just that guy who was the head of the head of the British invasion type idea. He was in 
sporadic stuff left, right, and centre at times. He didn't really have a lot of direction after the British invasion. And then they kind of had a feud. They had a feud with Joe. And it worked. Well, they had a, then they had a team with that. They, they, they had a team with Joe as well. I mean, they were in the, of the wildcard tag team tournament. You know, oh. that was, which was mostly just guys were fun together. And they won that. They won the tag titles. And that was kind of the big thing. I mean, I think the... When I mentioned the feud, I'm sure, I think the feud may be after the split up. But that was the thing that helped them. And then Magnus then went into the Bound for Glory series that year. He was all set. He pretty much won the Bound for Glory series mm-hmm. that year. I mean, I think he was. Maybe the 2013 one he might have been doing. He was winning. Aye, because he was doing well in the 2013 one. And then AJ came back. The last one, if I remember, the last one they ever did was he won it. Uh. I can't remember if he won that one. He was doing, he was winning. No, he was winning that. He was winning it for like so long, and then Styles came back and overtook him. Right. That's how that came about. Because that was the big thing they teased when he was in the Mafia. They were kind of like, oh, he's, um, this is the guy who's leading the Bound for Glory series. Which kind of was their justification to bring him in. Because they were talking about, oh, they're all world champions. But this guy's going to be a world champion because he's winning the Bound for Glory series. But I think working with Samoa Joe is what is made all this the guy is today. Arguably the most decorated champion out with the big two. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, his career is it's, it's incredible. We, I mean, he spent, you know, he's talking about his TNA stuff and he, but I think we should move on to one thing that we we always felt that we wanted to see him to see him and that was in WWE and he finally arrived uh, in WWE in 2015 and you know he had a phenomenal run in NXT he was just absolute class start to finish he really was I mean I, I didn't, it didn't get off to a good start. I think that's the thing it's going to be saying. Because uh, they brought him in at the TakeOver Unstoppable pay-per-view and it was he came out to confront Kevin Owens. And on paper, you are thinking, this is a, this, this is a, this is a, a perfect match. You've got one error of Ring of Honor taking on the next error of Ring of Honor. Two big guys. You know, I thought that, that should have worked perfectly, but... For different reasons and reasons in another, they didn't really click much in the ring, and also they were wary of how they were booking KO at that point because at the same time that was the point where he was being he, he brought to the main roster doing stuff with Cena. So they didn't really want him. I think initially the plan was for Joe to beat KO. I think that was going to be the plan, but when. KO was doing so well with the Cena stuff, they didn't want him looking weak to Cena by losing on NXT. So they kind of had to keep him strong, which meant that the stuff with KO didn't work out. So for the first maybe three to six months, I'm not sure how, the, how it went. Afterwards though, when he turned, I think it kind of got a lot better. I'm still a bit mixed on these TakeOver main events. But I don't think that's a hit on him. I think that's maybe more on what some of the quality of the other takeover main events. I thought 
and even then it wasn't just all him I thought some of the stuff afterwards with Nakamura and Bobby Roode and that type of stuff I don't think it was I, I thought takeovers were brilliant but I didn't think the main events were, far, were anywhere near the best match but you look at his NXT CV you can't argue with it I mean the first ever the first ever multiple time NXT champion uh, <laughs> first guy in NXT to beat Shinsuke Nakamura uh, yeah. ended the reign of Finn Balor Again, this isn't his fault. The way they ended him, the way they had him end Finn Balor's title reign on a live show, like no, that that should have been an absolute massive thing. But you just kind of went on WWE.com one day and you were like on Twitter, Facebook, and you were like, oh, that's about that. I want to see that. But it's just, I think it suited him more. I think it can and also when he's a heel, his music in WWE suited him so much better. Mm. So just, just the absolute. Sw- See when that song comes on when you're in like a, a pub or something like that, and you're walking to the bar, you just want to swagger up to the bar. and you end up shouting out, you start going, Joe, 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 Joe. You can't help but do it. You really can't. And then obviously as well in your head, you're all saying, Joe's gonna kill you. <laughs> it just works for the theme. And you can't help but take it or no, keep it in your head. Oh, it's a banger of theme tunes. His uh, TNA theme tune was quite good as well. It was intimidating. You kind of got the presence of violence with his TNA theme tune as well. I always remember that the first time I heard it, the start, when you hear like the oboe playing and you're just like, what is this? And then you hear it kick in, the, the, the beat kick, and you're like, oh, this is kind of like, kind of like gangster, but also like Hitman like. It was like, it was quite a daunting thing. You're sitting there going, oof, this is wee bit different aye and with WWE one though that I, I was kind of worried about what they were going to do with Steam because the TNA one is so iconic but they did do really well with it you know they, they nailed a really good theme they just kept that sense all the way through it um, from TNA day but I mean like in TNA right he's done no bad he, he's won the, tag, the Dusty Rhodes tag team classic the very first one ever with Finn Balor and he's they're beating some decent teams in that first one. They're beating the Lucha Dragons, Kalisto and Sankara. They beat Enzo Amore and Colin Cassidy. They beat STR as they're known in the mechanics, and then they have that random final with Baron Corbin and Rhino. I, mean, I, I remember we talked about that pay-per-view uh, about 18 months ago, I think it was that show we did on that pay-per-view, and we kind of talked about how he was kind of like a bit of a second fiddle and that type of thing, because... You know, Corbin and Rhino were actually quite over. And, you know, Gable and Jordan, who were in the other semi-final with Corbin and Rhino, were quite over. And Joe was kind of just like playing second fiddle to the uh, injury angle that Bala was playing. Mm. So it's kind of like, uh, yeah, it's a big achievement for him. But that, but that he's still kind of, you're still kind of like, I'm not nailing this book in any way. He just looked like he was just a bit daft there. I mean, he could, he, he probably, you, you wouldn't have argued if he walked out on Bala that night because Bala was like what are you doing you've been an absolute idiot you know we could just you could end up hurting yourself and make you make us look even stupid but no they, they, they persevered with it a wee bit and they kind of yeah the payoff was decent the payoff was pretty good uh, at times when it's crucial he has he, he did I get, I get what you mean there's been times I've kind of failed with it I mean up until you know Killer Cross in 2020 he had the shortest reign as NXT champion lasted two weeks until Nakamura won the title back off him. 
which obviously again goes back to the point you made earlier. It shows how unselfish it is, but it's from a fan perspective, a storytelling perspective, he's really just shooting himself in the foot there, isn't he? Aye, yeah, he definitely is. I mean, the Bala thing as well, he lost him. He lost him two takeovers in a row. Now it's kind of like, right, okay. And then obviously the live event thing happened and then he won the, the final match. But he could have easily had him win the match. I mean, I think the reason maybe he lost the match at takeover that in Dallas, maybe it was because he kind of cut, cut his cheek quite early into that match. He kind of legitimately hurt himself. So I think he maybe played on the fly with that one. I'm not 100% sure, which is maybe explains why, like, three weeks later on a live show, he wins the t- he actually does win the title. So mm-hmm. maybe I'm maybe I'm being a bit harsh in that regards to it, but at the time, I still thought, yeah, the pacing of this is all a bit iffy. You know, they can kind of go with it. And then he gets the title, and he pretty much loses it right away as well. And then wins it back. It, it, was, it felt like a really flip-flop. I mean, you could have built the brand round Joe's champion very easily, but I think he was I think he was just unlucky because that was the point Nakamura came in. And Nakamura steam was like a steam train in NXT. He was literally just like full speed ahead. Yeah. He's too good too big for this brand right off the bat. So I think he was just unlucky with that aspect of it. Because as you mentioned they did have you yeah, because yeah, you mentioned these, the rain was so short. It's just like, it's a shame. It's a shame because he's kind of, he's had these rains and you feel like nothing's really came of any of the three of them that he ends up having. Yeah. I mean, that's one school of thought. That's where you come from. But there's another school of thought, just thinking about it. During this time frame, this is possibly the strongest NXT rock in history. You know, you're talking Kevin Owens, Samoa Joe, Nakamura, Balor. You've got STR, you've got Baron Corbin, who is a wrecking machine at this point. You know, that's just to name a few. That's an incredible solid lineup. And every one of them, bar possibly badly Joe, went on in the main roster and have fully established themselves. You know what I mean? He's the only one, obviously, spot for me, and we could talk about, we'll talk about that in a wee bit, but they're all established names, all main eventers, or being in the main event, or solid mid-carders to help me elevate people. And <laughs> really, when you look back at that time, you can kind of understand why there's a bit of change, because the raw, it's a bit like, it's, no, I don't think it's quite like AEW right now, where it's so oversaturated, top-heavy, top faces, you know, Know, guys that all should be the face of the company when you get to a point half of them are going to have to go because there's just no time for them but NXT was on that borderline possibly at that point because they did have too many people and they had to start moving them I think I think the thing with Joe is really he's unlucky but I mean this is no disrespect to him but he was one of the kind of first big names coming in from the, uh, from out with WWE so I mean, other than AJ, AJ's kid. And he was before AJ, actually. He came in before, he was before AJ Styles. AJ Styles was the year after. Because, uh, yeah, you had the likes of maybe Zayn, Owens, Bala, Neville, etc. But they were kind of from the Indies. And 
to a bigger audience, maybe who didn't. I mean, the way some people reacted to CM Punk coming out with his old Ring of Honor featured shows that there's that amount of fans out there, but maybe they don't quite know about that kind of Ring of Honor stuff. You know, I mean, obviously they get a good reaction from the hardcore fans, but transitioning to the main roster, if they didn't watch NXT, they maybe less know about them. Joe was kind of the first guy in that aspect, kind of the older kind of guy came in. So, either was him. I mean, Nakamura, you maybe could put Nakamura in that element, but he was kind of, again, Japan, less of a known to the kind of people who made them just watch the main roster. So, Joe would have been a name they kind of knew about that. After him, Austin Aries, Eric Young, they type of guys. But they all seem to kind of suffer a similar kind of fate at times. I mean, because the thing with Joe kind of was he was at a level the other guys kind of were coming up the way so they were going in the one that Joe was kind of there already so he was kind of just trying to keep essentially he was trying to keep his spot because he was good enough to keep his spot but it's like um, it's like in football we have the, the veteran striker who's been there for so long and then this new talent comes through and just kind of you know completely kind of tries to get them out of the way and they're just trying to keep the spot there you know it's maybe not the best analogy, but it's kind of a similar idea. He's great at what he does, but at the same time, he's got less years in the tank, arguably, than other guys. Yeah. So it's kind of like, right, it's a different feeling. And he's already built the reputation of all the other guys are kind of coming from the bottom up. If you get what I'm coming from. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, like, he's 36 when he signed for TNA, so I'd probably say right by this point, you know, obviously not looking at it now, but if you go back to that time, He's at the end of his career. Nowadays, no, guys are going to their mid-40s now. But back then, you know, seven, eight years ago, you'd have said, aye, you're coming towards the end. There's no, you, you don't have much left in the tank. So yeah, I, to- I totally get what you're saying there. And you know, <laughs> sadly, it seems to have been that way because as we mentioned uh, previously there, his body did start to go on him a wee bit once he hit the main roster I mean he went up to the main roster in 2017 and he just seemed to get hit with everything wrong with him at the one time oh such bad luck I mean you talk about kind of this kind of so many unfortunate circumstances kind of surrounded a lot of his stuff related to the main roster there was the thing very early on in his WWE run I think it was before he got the main call up but when he was he did a dark match with Tyson Kidd hits Tyson Kidd with the muscle buster Tyson Kidd unfortunately gets a really serious injury it can happen Tyson Kidd's obviously never wrestled again so that's kind of that leads to him losing the muscle buster and the muscle buster we didn't we've not talked about the muscle buster too much in detail but that as a finisher is an absolute devastating finisher so powerfully done looks like it genuinely hurts so to not have that kind of takes something out of his arsenal so He's still great, but he's missing that big... I always thought he was missing that big power move to do something. He would always choke them out, but I don't think he had, he had, something, he had something that he could have used that could have pinned them without that. He started using that Urinagi move in the corner, which is a great move to use in the match, but it's not a finish. Uh, <laughs> then when he kind of gets the call-up, the angle where he gets called up where he's helping Triple H attack Seth Rollins, Seth Rollins gets an injury from it and nearly rules Seth Rollins out of Mania so he's initially that, that's his I mean we know that Vince McMahon 
to his flaws. It's a very impressionable man. So he has he sees this guy come up and takes out one of his star men by obviously complete accident. Happens. Rollins gets his knee caught. I think he's getting the choke from behind and Rollins just gets his knee caught. It, it can happen. We see that in football as well. People just get their feet, their feet caught in the turf and he's got the turf to the spot. But, you know what Vince can be like sometimes. He's also then without a WrestleMania program coming out of that as well. So kind of, when that's all said and done, he's kind of still, he just, he's kind of floating about. Because I think the point as well is the injury to Rollins meant, he was meant to have the stuff with Rollins. I think he was meant to have a match with Rollins in between. But as a result, they keep Rollins caught in cotton, wrapped in cotton wool for WrestleMania. So I think for maybe the first, you know, maybe six months or so, it just feels like I'm genuinely worried about. See if this happened. See if that six months happened. Now, you'd think you'd be genuinely worried for him that he wouldn't make the year and he would just get absolutely bad. Aye, no, absolutely. I mean, like, things did sort of look like they were going to pick up. I mean, he did win the Fatal 4 with Extreme Rules against Balor, Reigns and Wyatt. And he got, we got finally the match. A lot of people wanted. I mean, did I mention earlier on? I thought what similarity between Joe and Lesnar. And they were finally going to get the match. You know, um, and they greatly named Great Balls of Fire pay-per-view. Um, my God, did that not deliver? That was just—it was really disappointing. I don't want to say oh. It was really disappointing because you finally got Lesnar's case to get out that meat, muscle, strength, quickness, everything. Let's have these two guys. That, as, as Grant says, big meaty men slapping meat's a chunk or whatever it is out of each other. Let them do it. Give them the brain to go make a classic. And they don't, it's actually a squash, it's shite. Yeah, the, this was the spell where so many fans got, probably you included, Alan, got really pissed off with Brock Lesnar's stick. I think at this, we've seen currently, he's, when on his, on his floor, he's great. This is currently the best Brock Lesnar since he came back, since the street type, since that... Since that, street, since that year after the streak, this is the best he's been. But at this point, he was literally just... He just kept winning really quickly, and he was... There's, people say there's two examples. I mean, obviously... Yeah, obviously lost it to get, lost it to Reigns, eventually. But people say that during this spell, there's two times that WWE had the chance to take the belt off him, make somebody big, based on the build of the match as well, and they didn't do it. One was just after SummerSlam with Braun Strowman, who was having a, a career year. The stuff he was doing with Roman that year was absolutely fantastic. You know, when he run the flings him off the woman and the stretcher onto the after onto the concrete backstage in the gorilla position. You know, oh, it's, it's that's amazing. The other one is Joe. Joe in the lead up to this one, led, was a came across as a, such a legitimate threat. He was trading uh, promos with Paul Heyman. He was literally... Paul Heyman, when these promos, the look of fear he was having on Samoa Joe. You literally thought, coming into this pay-per-view, these, as you mentioned, these two were... If they were given time, I think that's the issue, they were not given the time. They got six minutes here. And 
they had to follow Heath Slater and Kurt Hawkins. I mean, nobody can follow that much. Uh, I mean, TNA might try to do that match again. Probably have. I can't remember. I've not watched recently, but yeah, that was the disappointing aspect of it. They were literally given scraps to, like, to go off of, and it yeah. just—it wasn't fair on them. Joe got a bit of. The, the fatal four-way match at SummerSlam kind of just after it with day two uh, Braun and Roman is a far superior match because it's given time it's got a flow to it Joe looks so much cred- more credible even though he doesn't win the belt mm. that's the type of booking that you think they, sh- they could have done but imagine what would have happened if they just thought right, this guy we're portraying this guy as a great threat let's have him do it Let's pull the trigger. He's a big star. He's a big draw. We could do something with it, but no, they just said, uh, like with so many other wrestlers at that point, they got cold feet and didn't want to take the belt off of No, I, no, that's what I mean. I think everyone would have been happy, you know, WWE like that rival slash the three pay-per-views. I don't think anyone had a problem with Joe wins the title on the first one, retains in the second one and drops the Lesnar in the third. And then gets his rematch, I don't know, on the Raw after or something, right? And fails to get one. I don't think anyone living pissed off. It would have been ever like, we've had three good matches here. These guys have went at each other. We've got what we wanted. Joe's have been a world champion now. That would have worked. I would have, I'd have taken that. Because I don't know, back at this time, WWE, as you said, had a habit of not pulling the trigger on the show. Joe and Strowman. And they're booking elsewhere was substandard at best at times. So I think back, if you're looking at it back then, most fans would have taken that option. I'd keep him four matches over three months, bang, that'll do And just keep Heyman and him on the mic trading. And every so yeah. often, him and Les- Lesnar face-to-face squaring off him. And as he lost today with a Lesnar one, locker room, security, you know, your Uncle Bobby, your Auntie Fanny, everyone's in the ring trying to keep my fucking everyone gets flung about. You know, one of them, we'd have taken it and we'd have went there and loved it. It'd have been yeah. better than Yeah, I think, I think in this kind of first kind of year, it gets caught in so many, on the main roster, it gets caught in so many, you know, feuds that kind of, he's just the wrong guy for that particular time. I mean, the two examples I'd think of, you get Survivor Series that year as well. Well, granted, he's in the five on five, the Raw vs. SmackDown match, which is fine. However, that's the Raw vs. SmackDown match that they load in with all these kind of old faces. I don't you, you remember it well when they had. Uh, when John Cena comes out, you know, not wearing the blue from SmackDown, he's just coming out in his normal gear. You know, he's not doing that. Uh, what was the other one? Triple H was representing Raw for some reason, even though he was the authority for both sides. Uh, we had Shane McMahon in that one, you know. Kurt Angle was in there, you know. It's, it's just a testament that they have. The match has four up no five technically five fresh faces in the WWE scene. Uh Braun wins it. So he's he gets no bad booking even though the post match is shite. Uh Bala lasts about twenty-four minutes, he does not badden it. And then you get the other three of Joe, Bobby Roode, and Shinsuke Nakamura, who all get who are the first ones to get eliminated. You know, they're they're all out. You know, Nakamura and Roode get beat off a of Strowman. Joe gets slimmed up a scene. So they kind of look like cannon fodder for the other guys. The match, the matches, they, they build that match all about the older guys. So they get, they're just the wrong guys in that point. So they just get looked, 
absolutely stupid. And the other one is just after Mania that year, where he's the guy who's put in the feud with Roman before kind of they do the brands up. Because they actually end up moving him to SmackDown. So he, he's feuding with Roman, but they're going to put him off to SmackDown anyway. So you know fine well Roman's going to beat him. But this is right after WrestleMania 34, where everybody was shitting on the main event between Lesnar and Roman. Lesnar was obviously... He went away, as he did at that point after Mania, and Roman took the flag. Joe was the other guy in that match, so even Joe could have wrestled the best match of his career, nobody would have given a fuck. Yeah. Which is the problem. He was put so many times. His two biggest issues on the main roster of WWE was injuries. And yeah. when he was fit, he was always in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. I mean, see, you're hoping that he, he was just about getting drafted to SmackDown. But I think he's main roster run. The only, well, obviously, the build up for the Lesnar match, people thought he was going to get what we really want, we didn't get. The only other sort of highlight for myself personally was when he got into that feud with AJ. Oh, Andy! <laughs> he's just came out of the Nakamura feud, and you're wondering where's this going to go, and then Joseph, and then you're like, for a lot of people around TNA, like a sales, you know, like stack and stuff like that, you're probably sitting going, it's a bit like, I suppose it'd be a bit like for us here going, oh, uh, two drops like Gary and the Americans are going, oh my god, this is amazing, we're like, this is like the 16th time, it's upon a 25th time, mate, I've seen it too many times. But it has a bit of freshness to it because it was in WWE, and AJ's got the soccer mom haircut, and Wendy's there, but there was a bit of freshness to it, and Seen it in WWE, thought, all right, okay, we've seen it, it's been done TNA, it's been done magnificently. Here we go, let's see what you've got, we're supposed to have the best riders, the biggest company, biggest budget, let's see what you do with it. And it falls flat in his face. It's the way it should. I mean, the mic work from, from Jonas is just flat. Oh, he was a sadistic psychopath, or when they do with the family. But I mean, you just don't see you live up to the height. Yeah, I think the... Um, it's a similar scenario to the Lesnar one. Because at this particular point, AJ had been the champ for about nine months. And, you know, Ross, Ross McLeod from the podcast, he's he'll tell you example, he's been very vocal about this in the past. AJ's reign was getting stale. So, he'd held the belt for nine months. There's no disrespect. He'd done a lot of great stuff. He was a great champ. In terms of some of his matches, sometimes book from Tyler Bad. But nobody would have complained that at SummerSlam, if they put the belt on Joe. <laughs> and they could have still done the same stuff that they did after that with the Kofi Mania build up in that one. Daniel Bryan could have won the title after Joe. And then they could have worked some way into that one. But they just kind of did, exa- they did exactly. To- Joe got exactly the same treatment that he got in the Lesnar feud. And he also got the same treatment that Nakamura got just before that, because Nakamura had three matches with like weird style lost them all. Yet Joe was similar. He had three matches with him, lost them all. <laughs> Technically, you know. He, he, he won the matches SummerSlam, but he won it by DQ. He never won the title at any particular point in time. That was the kind of thing. And he was just He was very much in a cycle at that point. Because the year before we mentioned the year before, Great Balls of Fire, Survivor Series. This particular one, you know, off, comes off the AJ feud, goes into Team SmackDown at Survivor Series, gets eliminated in less than a minute by Drew. 
I mean, great. Drew's getting a great push. Good on. But at the expense of Joe. I mean, the other guys in that particular team for that match that they could have had, uh, maybe. Uh, Jeff Hardy could have took them. Jeff Hardy, the Miz, Shane McMahon, and Rey Mysterio. Any of those guys. Jeff Hardy could take a big claymore and look absolutely amazing. He would do like 10 flips, do a wee dance. You know, while his brothers get beat up. Uh, but, no. Uh, yeah, he was, in a, he was in a cycle. He was in a rut. I mean, granted, I think his best main roster moment does come just after that. We talk about his work on the mic. Leading up to the chamber in 2019, you remember that, pro- you see quite a lot, that promo he comes out and just absolutely berates all the guys. And he has the, he has the dig at Jeff Hardy, but he's out there. That is one of the best promos on the main roster in recent years. Some of the stuff he would, he's, he does not give a feck who he insults. Because we missed out that part in TNA where he was meant to team with Kevin Nash and Scott Hall at the pay-per-view. I think it was a turning point. And Scott Hall no-shows. And he plays into Scott Hall while his best powers are standing in the corner. Like, I'm going to absolutely... Some of the work he does on the mic is good. He's, uh, the Ali feud he has around about this time as well had some promise, I think. They could have actually done a lot more with that one. But You start to put Ali up, because Ali at this point, is, he'd just been moved from 205 Live, and he had this whole blue light Robocop thing and gimmick going and it was actually kind of working and then obviously Larry eliminates him from the rumble but he also tried to push him to get to the bigger spot but as you said it didn't quite work off I mean but I suppose in hindsight it kind of did as well because although we get Kofi Mania Kofi Mania was never meant to happen it was going to be Ali Mania because Ali exactly. Was... exactly that was the thing they pushed Ali for legitimate reasons and as again Joe was unselfish he was helping Ali because Ali had just came in but the other guys we talked about Brock and AJ very established they didn't they could have took the loss you know they could have took it Ali Ali maybe takes the loss to, uh, to Joe and maybe goes down the way again but if Ali's if the purpose of Ali get beating Joe was to put Ali in for a WrestleMania match originally the fair play you know there's no issue with that one I think Joe would say the same I mean, do you think, looking back, right, like his career, his unselfishness has truly shot him in the foot at times? Probably has, because he could have been a multiple-time world champion, especially in TNA. You look at how many times Jeff Jarrett won the belt in TNA. Come on. I'd rather not. Exactly. I mean, so, so, he much. could have won that belt at least two or three times. You know, There's so many guys like that in wrestling. Undertaker's quite similar. Undertaker, if you look at the length of his, length of breadth of his career, the amount of world titles he won in comparison to that, is absolutely I mean it's so, I think he's only he's barely near he's not even near double figures which is something and then you get a guy like guys like Randy Orton Triple H who've won so many I, I want to say he's nine but I was trying to correct it I think he's nineteen in world champion but he wasn't oh, actually I don't even think he's nine I'm not going to lie as I said I was trying to correct it I don't want to lie nine sticking in my head but yeah I mean, absolutely I mean but he's also in a way a bit like Roddy Piper. Roddy Piper always said he never needed the title. Wasn't interested. It could be both carrying him about him. <laughs> so that's why Piper only won the title. He wasn't, wasn't interested in being more champion. 
to expect maybe jokes like that as well. It's not interesting being the top guy. He's happy helping and build the business and, you know, pushing through talent. You know, that's fair enough. There's a lot of guys out there like that. But from my point of view, maybe a selfish point of view, I wish he did just kind of went, no, actually, it's time for me to have my shot. Because yeah. it just was those two moments we're talking about for Lesnar and AJ. It just solidifies WWE had no faith in the man, which is their mistake because he had done so much for those titles. I think it's a thing you maybe you can maybe understand it because again I'm looking from a football side of things as well. See when they had that many injuries in the spell of time, you maybe start to think, can I rely on this guy? Not can I rely on him, because when he's in the ring he can go, but can I guarantee, do I believe that this guy's going to stay uninjured? And clearly Vince didn't think that. And you could say certain things if you want, he has some sort of reason to say, to have that feeling. I mean, it's the same in football. If you say that if you have a striker who gets it, who's done his ligaments in, you know, every couple of years, do you, do you trust him to be a top striker still? Probably not. Uh, that's maybe he's feeling the job. And it's a shame, but it's a business, it's a comfort industry, and if that's what if that's the end the thing is, that's the that's the thing. But it's it is a shame because it's quite it's quite sad to think that Joe Samoa Joe's WrestleMania moment is the fact that he was in the rain in a poncho <laughs> at last year's Mania. Because he's he, he wrestles he's only had one match at WrestleMania. And it was the match at WrestleMania 35 with Rey Mysterio that lasts about a minute. I think Mysterio had an injury and they cut the match short. Yeah. No, it's sad to think that, but if you mentioned you're going to the last point as a, as a business and you have to look at you know, the nuts and bolts here, and I think, especially in the last couple of years, what WWE has done, not just to Joe, but to other people, has been possibly so scandalous. But Joe specifically, because as you mentioned, his best WrestleMania moment is having a poncho in the pissing rain, right? And that's pointless, to be honest. He's probably the best commentator WWE's got. It's Mark if he's no... I don't think he's on at this point. Or if he has been on, he's been a guest commentator. No, I don't think, I don't think McAfee's there. I think McAfee comes just after it. I couldn't remember if he was on at this point. Corey Graves was stale. Renee wasn't really working for a lot of people. Cole as well. Cole, you know, they needed some. And he was just class in the commentary. Yeah, he really had you intrigued. And you're, he's one of these guys, see when he talks, you listen. He, oh, yeah. he, he commands respect, but see at the same time, it's not like he's really reiterating it to you, like talk to you, like you will respect me. It's more. When he talks, everyone just stops what they're doing and has to hear what he's saying. And, you know, the fact that they release him right after Mania and then Triple H pulls him back, right, and he has the yeah, he wins the NXT title again, gets injured again, and then they release him again. Like, all within the space. Uh, of- I, I, I don't know if you've read the other interview pretty recently that kind of talks about it. Uh, I think uh, the main reason they take the belt off him is he gets COVID. So they take the belt off him. But at that same time, they're deciding I'm changing. They're, changing, they're going to go into NXT UK, NXT 2.0. And I think when he knows that the 2.0 the is coming, I think he kind of has a feeling himself. Because you know you know yourself, COVID, your eyes, 
unless you get a, a case like maybe like what Keith Lee had with those complications. If you're a fit and healthy guy with COVID, you've had your jab, you've had your vaccinations, 10 days, two weeks, you can be back to some sort of uh, level. So missing two weeks of TV, probably not the big deal. But the fact he's missing two weeks of TV, I mean, did he, everybody had the feeling that he got released because of that he got stripped of the belt because of changing the, to the to the new system. And the on screen reason was he was injured. So the both of them are technically they were technically both true at both sides of the argument. But I think it was that day. See that day when guys like Road Dog and all that type of stuff. I guess it's when Vigo got released as well. Uh, or maybe Vigo was just after. But we, I think it was the same time. But see when you seen all these names getting released. I was sitting there going, see if Joe makes it through the night, I'd be sure. And then what happens the next day is gone. Because yeah. it's clear that they were what they were doing, they were getting rid of the dub I mentioned this on the NXT 2.0 uh, six month uh, show. Uh, it's clear at that point that triple that if they're getting rid of Triple H's guys, you know. The obvious target is a guy that Triple H went to behind the boss's back and went I'm bringing you back. And that's one thing Joe could say. He's like, I was the only guy who in the space of a month got sacked and rehired. Not many guys can come out and say that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there'll be many guys who will ever say that when Vince McMahon's running WWE. Yeah. So. But it does show you what Triple H thinks of him. But he's oh, he's Triple H loves him. Triple H loves him. Many of ever running the company now, it looks like it's going to be Nick Khan when he finally decides to pack it in. Which... It's going to be a travesty because it's. I don't. I don't know. Nick Khan's probably going to try and sell it for profit to maybe Disney or something, and you're going to lose. And w, I don't know what WWE would look like with Disney, but you know, under Triple H, if you've not seen what he's done with NXT, you knew that it was going to be in safe. It's going to be safe hands, and it's potentially going to be future proof because you're star after star getting made constantly. You know, I've been, and I think if the, if you, you want to take over, say, the now. He probably could really take it to AEW and be like, well, it's not going to any fucking idea we're going to do this. And there you go, sort it. And it, it would make WWE a lot more competitive for you know, your casual viewer as well, probably. Um, but yeah, uh, that's, a, that's a story for a different time. But um, at this moment in time, Joe is currently unemployed on sabbatical, retired. We don't know. What's your thoughts on Joe's future? Do you see him going to wrestle anywhere else? Or do you see him potentially going to a commentary role or a manager role or some sort? I think he's still got something left in the tank. Uh, I don't know if he could do a full sched- a full time schedule. I think the, NXT, the way NXT was working could have worked for him. Uh, when he got initially released, I called him going to TNA. Because the way TNA does the show is currently they take the shows so many in advance he's got a lot of free reign to kind of do that so he's not working as many dates suit him perfectly given his history in TNA I think he's a guy who would come in because I don't think I think TNA's got a lot of great things going on don't think they have a lot of main event stars he's a guy who would walk in and make a guy easily put him in there with uh, Josh Alexander likes of that money however my feeling now based on the events of recent weeks AEW buying Ring of Honor I could see him playing a big role in the Ring of Honor stuff because the talk is Tony Khan wants to book that himself which is fair play but that's a lot of work to do 
I could see him having some impact in that. I don't know what. Could be could be wrestling, could be helping to do that, could be developing the new guys coming up because Tony Khan wants to use that as a developmental step. Type of thing. So you could be doing that. He could end up because I can't see him working the AW schedule. I can't yeah. see him doing that. I don't think his body's got it anymore, unfortunately. And it would pain me to see him on dark. I don't want to see him on dark. Uh, I think he's I think he's a great case of a guy. He'd be great in that AEW system for the Ring of Honor side, I think, because he's got the tools to help that one, doesn't he? He could, he could show up on like a couple of rampages or something like that, could mix it up. Be good on you, Japan, strong. I would love to see him stick him in the G1 for a year. Give him one run in the G1. Why not? Do it. See what happens. Put him in there with blooming Tamahuro Ishii and just watch the world crumble. They still have the G1. That, that, that sounds quite. That sounds quite important. That, that sounds amazing. But I'm quite agree. I think he's going to be the aspect of Ring of Honor. I would like to think he's going to keep him on money. We'd be on more like a general manager role. Maybe go out as a commissioner on screen, work behind the screens to support Tony. That's where my money would be, personally. But I think both could shout. But there's one thing is definite he's not going back to WWE. I, I agree with you, Impact. Uh, Impact do not have a wealth of top stars, uh, especially Mark Hartland, the fact that they lost Swerve, who was regarded as one of the top stars to EW. But it's no doubt we'll enjoy him on YouTube shortly in Dark, just like Jay Lethal. Um, it's a travesty in itself, but yeah, no, I totally agree with you, anyway. And I think from that point, that brings us to the end of our show. Um, so, Stephen, thank you very much for joining me tonight having a chat about hopefully one of the best wrestlers ever um, actually just before we go see me just think of the list of the wrestlers he's actually wrestled in his career he's possibly got the best resume in history uh, I would maybe say Styles has got a better one because Styles did Styles done Ring of Honor TNA New Japan WWE I would say Styles has got the best one for them than him. Yeah, I would very go. Styles has done them all. I'd say Styles is the best one. Well, cut, angles, cut Angle, you could argue too. Because Cut well, Angle did some stuff in Japan, the TNA, and obviously was part of that golden age of WWE. Top five, maybe then? <laughs> I'd say he's up there, right? He's up there. But Angle and Styles are the two ones that would stand out above him. Can't really think of him there. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And it's a good point to end the show again. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. And, and we'll speak to you later. Hi, I'm Scott McLeod. And I'm Grant McGrobby. We are the hosts of the monthly show on each Superplex Retreat East Meets West. Where we'll bring you all the latest happenings, reviews and big events from New Japan and the land of the Far East. You can remember to check that out on the East Meets Superplex Retreat podcast feed on all good Android podcasting sites like Anchor, Spotify or iTunes now.